Coming up, readings beyond the raffle and Theoryland approved conjecture. Deep dive into the spells and scrolls of nerd culture. Absorb Stormlight. Hone sympathy. Harness Sayadar and Sayadeen. This is Phantology. You may have heard of us. Before we start this episode, a special thank you to Vincent Smith, our newest Patreon supporter. Vincent, thank you so much for making our wildest dreams possible. Okay, on to the episode. All right, what's up, Swamp Zombies? This is Steven with Phantology, joined this time by Ryan, Ben, and Josh, four out of the five possible Phantology members, and we're talking King of Thorns. Book two of the Broken Empire by Mark Lawrence. Is is the fact that four of the Phantology five are in on this discussion in and of itself a small endorsement of the series? I would say yeah. so. I, that's yeah. fair. That that's the yeah. And Jake is just too busy reading Foundation by Isaac as, as yeah whatever like the the father of sci-fi to engage in reading this uh this book so. I think that was just Ryan doing kind of a, it was Ryan's weird flex flex because he recommended the series. (laughs) So he he wants it to be. That's an earned flex. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. Weird. Well, you got to say weird flex, but okay. (laughs) That's the name, right? Yeah, that's Uh, right. No, this is, uh, I mean, my review thus far, I really liked the first one. I don't know if I like King of Thorns quite as much as the second, to be honest. We can obviously talk about it more as much as the first yeah sorry did i say that wrong yeah i liked prince better than than king so far have not read emperor yet and ryan i know you've read emperor josh have you finished the trilogy i got about maybe 30 percent of the way through emperor but then you guys were so slow going through king i didn't (laughs) want to read emperor and then not be able to uh, (laughs) differentiate between them so i stopped and actually read foundation while i waited for you guys yeah, which was an amazing book, I will say. And yeah. then you just finished King as well. I literally finished the book like two hours ago. Oh, oh you pulled a Josh. Yeah. Yo, well, I actually read it. I didn't listen at 3x to finish. Okay. <laughs> you can throw that shade my way, but I stand by my actions. I don't. Yeah, you got you to gotta do what you got to do sometimes for a Phantology podcast. So thanks for tuning in. Uh, if you want to find more of our reviews, including our review of Prince of Thorns, you can do that at www.phantologybooks.com and you can support the show at patreon.com slash phantology underscore books. So let's just kind of jump right into it. I don't know. Do we need to do a non-spoiler thing for this? I say we just do yeah, full spoilers for the first for, two for books. Second, yeah, for second books, I feel like for first yeah. books, non-spoiler is good yeah. because it's if people are deciding but second book if you've read the first one and you liked it then read their second read the second one that's my uh that's, non-spoiler review. <laughs> that's your hot nice. take <laughs> yeah yeah definitely if you could make it through the first one then then go for it yeah second so book's probably you... a little bit tamer mm, yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah i no, uh, i agree okay we, we yeah look, should we start by talking that's one of my talking points that i have down uh kind of along what Ryan said there, tamer in terms of, in terms of darkness, right? I'm assuming is what you meant in darkness like over and, our violence. Yeah. and violent content. So they, okay. They doled, I don't know if that's the right word, but they like doled Jory out quite a bit for the second book. His actions weren't quite as miserable as they were in the first book. Mm-hmm. And also the ending, um, which I don't want to get too into right now, but the whole book was set up as like, uh, man, is he going to like kill this person? That's would probably be a better ruler than him. And then they made it, they did a little flippity flop on that. So I yeah. feel like that, that took out some of the, um, the grayness of his character. Like, you know, that, that for me was really compelling. And then when they switched that, it kind of took out um, the main villainy of this book for me. So in terms of 
um, the overall, I don't know, like body count of this book versus the first book, but in terms of uh, Jorge as a villain, I feel like he was much more of a villain the first book than he was the second. I'll agree with you on your Jorg, Jorg point, but like the original disagreement was like, what's the overall level of darkness in general? And I, so I agree that Jorg was a less dark character, but part of that was because we got really in the weeds of being able to explain what has happened to Jorg and like why he's the way he is. You know, we we got two very sickening scenes to me. One of them caused me to put down the book for about a week. The dog was, scene? Yeah, the justice of the king, Orden or whatever his name is. Yeah, teaching Jorg that lesson. Not like the dog torture. I also had a hard time when he committed, uh, what's the name? Fratricide? Fratricide, right. Yeah. Uh, incidentally or accidentally. Yeah, so I think that those two scenes made the book as a whole darker than the first one. But that's just. But he also killed a child the first book. Did he? Yeah, it was like one of the. I mean, I don't think it was an infant, but it was like he killed a kid. Like a teenager. Yeah, like towards the beginning, he. That was more like in a in a war type setting. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was a, a baby. But it also was like more accidental. He didn't. He didn't mean to. I mean, I guess he came there like that was part of the reason why he went. It was him climbing his personal mountain, right? So he could look over it and and choose his destiny. And but and he always kind of knew that he wouldn't do it. So the the reason why I don't think that is quite as dark as some of the things that happened in the first book is that it's played as a big deal. It's played as the reason why he's like locked this memory up that's been tormenting him for an entire book. And so, yes, it was like a really terrible thing that happened and a really dark thing that happened. And if you dwell on it, yeah, it's absolutely like super dark, but it has a plot impact to it that I felt like reflected how terrible it was. Whereas in the first book, terrible things mm-hmm. would happen and he would do terrible things with like little, no, no ramifications on him or the plot or anything. It was just like terrible th- things happening because terrible things happen. And he was super unapologetic about it. So when the terrible things happen and when the main character is like, yeah, these terrible things happen and they're like fine with it. then as the reader, it seems really dark. I agree with yeah. that. I think that the, I, I think that this book was better than the first book innocent for the reason that uh, it, it was much more like into George's like character and psyche and like, you felt a lot more compassion for him, but I, to me, that compassion uh, like magnified the darkness of it. I guess we're it's, there's no real clear cut answer here, but yeah, I, I um, will say that on my second read through, I did skip the part with Justice, the dog that was yeah. uh, tra- traumatic for me reading it the first time, and the second scene with his uh, little half brother was also I didn't I didn't remember that. Uh, but it was pretty unnerving reading it through this the second time. And I mean, that, that's, I guess, the whole argument is whether it's it's how the book reacts to that rather than the scene itself, I guess, is what you guys mm-hmm. are saying. Whereas Jorg from book one doesn't seem like that would have bothered him as much. Yeah, It wouldn't have been such a horrible memory that he had to get rid of it to continue going. Yeah, I agree. Did you guys realize that the the dead baby that he was saying the whole time was Deegan? I think Deegan was his half brother's name. Was that a was that a nice twist? Like, were, were you did that add to the gut punch of the moment? So I was okay. I always thought in my head that the dead baby was just going to be a baby that he killed in like the nuclear blast, which we did I get a scene kind of like that. We did get a scene like that, but I thought it was yeah. just going to be. Um, I, you know, I figured it was going to be something of his past actions, right? That was haunting him. So that was what I thought it was. And then I did. So I, I liked that it was that it was in that vein of a past action haunting him, you know, but I don't think it was too shocking that it was, you know, his brother, his half brother. And I, I guess I wish I, and this was a little bit of the book, whole book in general. I wish that some things were a bit more foreshadowed you know like i don't know how you would have been able to guess that 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 it was going to happen with this half brother like that yeah you know it didn't seem inevitable 
in the way that I wish it would have kind of seemed inevitable. It was like you got to the chapter and then in that chapter it did a good job leading up to it. Something terrible is going to happen. You're going to, but it didn't really lead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go ahead, Ryan. This goes back to one of Ben's arguments about a different book that I'm not going to spoil um, in which Ben was kind of arguing that the event wasn't really foreshadowed enough or appropriately enough. Is this the um, changes thing? Yeah. Um, yes. Well, I actually have a I actually have a better example of how I kind of wish that this would have been done is uh Dalinar's arc and Oathbringer. Um with the mm. terrible things that I don't want to get into spoilers, but anybody that's read Oathbringer knows the thing that happened Dalinar's past. That's yeah, you know, we're told that something bad happened to Dalinar's back past and like the first chapter he's in. So it's not too mm. much of a spoiler. But like that, I feel like as the book progressed, you I think I think part of that is that you've had Sanderson had like 2,500 pages leading up to that part versus, you know, this is like, Fine. yeah, fair. You know, but a third but of just that. setting up that arc, there were Easter eggs laid and there was like momentum going to what happening yeah, happened. I agree. That I think that so, it could have been a little bit more uh, done well. Yeah. But again, this is Mark Lawrence's, you know, is this his second, was Prince of Thorns his first published book or second? Like, is this his first series that he's coming out with? I think it's his first. Either way, comparing like a, you know, things in Mistborn have, like if you compare this like Mistborn by Sanderson, like this is handled, you know, much better than some things in Mistborn. So I don't want to try and like Mm -hmm. make this unfair comparison, but just the event. I agree. That's a, that's a somewhat, that's a good comparison. Yeah. All right, Josh, Josh, good point for Josh. I also agree with your original point, Ryan. I do think that that, uh, was a little bit unearned and uh, uses infants in the ways that sh- they shouldn't be used as plot <laughs> devices. So I think, yeah. So, so I agree that the, some of the events could have been foreshadowed more, more than just this. And I think it's kind of a function of the whole time skips and time jumps that were kind of the central I guess, backbone of this book. Every four or five chapters, we were jumping years back and forth. And I think there were some good things that this structure gave to the book, but then some things made, it made other things more difficult. And for example, at the end, he pulls out the gun, right? At the, at the ending. But that didn't get, like the whole idea that, that a gun could even be used didn't even get introduced until like the previous flashback chapters it's like well into the book you know like way into the book the book is almost over at this point and i thought it was really cool and i think it could have been cooler if it had been like i don't know somewhat of a narrative vein throughout the entirety of the book but it didn't pop into like the very end and it's like oh and he's got a gun and you're like okay that's kind of cool but also like could it sounds have been like cooler? a worst of the best yeah it probably <laughs> yeah, is. Yes. even if it would have been a straight up like chekhov's gun where it was introduced in the first act, not mentioned again until the duel. You know what I mean? That could have been cool too. And and even the same thing happened with the with the like ruby jewel type thing that the the princess had. Yeah, it was like yeah. a little grenade bomb type thing, uh-huh. bigger than. And a even like the the zoom the Google Earth cameras. Yeah, the satellite, whatever he's got. Satellite, yeah. <laughs> I think so. The ruby thing I think was actually done better because it starts with talking about how Gog can use the fires and it's like every fire is part of one fire. And this Ruby, I guess, is then kind of like all bundled up. So there's a little bit more of, uh, of some of this throughout, but like you say, Josh, like the Ruby wasn't introduced until the whole dowry conversation, which is like the chapter before. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's some weaknesses in the Ruby bomb. It's kind of like you get flashbacks until something is introduced that is going to get them up out of the pickle that yeah. the current is in and that will jump to the current. So I, I think it's a really cool idea to yeah. structure a story like that. I just don't know how well the execution was done. You know, it wasn't done terribly. It wasn't like unreadable by any means. Like, I just think that it, it, it could have been a little bit, um, mm-hmm. it could have been done a little bit better, I think, to make it like go from a, like an interesting device an interesting way the story was written to being like a really really unique way that the story was written you know i'll definitely remember it because of the way that it was used i can't think of any other 
can I think of another, can you guys think of another example of a, of a book that we've read on here with this level of flashback, like back and forth constantly throughout the whole book? Uh, like Canius trilogy. Yeah. Maybe not the same level, but a similar yeah. level. Yeah, especially, but okay. was it three of like, no, two of like Aeneas. Yeah. 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 But that's like thousands of years back and forth. Yeah. I was, I'm actually trying, I'm actually like plotting out and writing a story, you know, Whoa. That, that does, I talked Drop. to you about this like a few months ago. Like, you, and your, you and Mackenzie, right? Yeah. Yeah. Life. Yeah. Um, I mean, we haven't made that much progress on it, but, but the main part of the story takes place a generation before the current part of the story so like it's my goal is kind of having like maybe a 70 30 split kind of like this was where you're getting most of the page time back you know in this previous generation of characters and then but the there's also a current like a current time story happening so mm-hmm. I, I i did kind of take some inspiration from this and how i kind of want that to play out so i so i appreciated it but i think that there were some weaknesses in the way it was done josh had mentioned um, Stormlight before, and Stormlight is also a book that flashbacks are used uh, used in, uh, or a series that flashbacks are used in, and I think that it's a little different because there's they're so like like you can predict when they're going to happen and kind of like the purpose behind them. I think a, a reason why a lot of people didn't like Rhythm of War as much was because it was based on a viewpoint character in the flashbacks that they didn't love as much as some of the other books. And so, I don't know, I think flashbacks are always a hit or a miss. I think the interesting thing for this book was that um, the flashbacks were used in such a way to help you identify with Jorg and kind of um, his missing uh, like knowledge or missing information because mm-hmm. he had his memories locked away. And so you're kind of, as, a, as an audience member, trying to kind of figure things out along with him. And also this sense of like disjointed narrative you're having to kind of cope with so i think that that was a unique way that they're used but i think that you know we've definitely reviewed books with other flashbacks then ryan does emperor of thorns have the same flashback thing going on or is it a straight narrative tell us just tell us that much don't tell us any more about their flashbacks and emperor of thorns yeah from my reading from the 30 percent i read though i don't think it's as heavy on the flashbacks though like no i i remember uh well i don't know I, I yeah. do remember getting sometimes confused when I was listening to the books on Audible, thinking, trying to, trying to figure out, wait, what, what, what time am I in here? Is this the past or present or how far in the past? So it was. Uh, th- there were certainly times where I was a little bit uh, confused. Time jumps, flashbacks. We killed that one. <laughs> Next topic. <laughs> Let's talk about some of the, okay, here, here's a question that I wanted to pose after reading this book was side characters. So I think we talked in the, in a Prince of Thorns, we said Jorg was a really interesting and, and fascinating character, but outside of Jorg, there wasn't really like anyone that was too notable. Did you guys think that other characters were developed in King better than in Prince? and maybe why or why not and then also is it just hard in a first person narrative to have good side characters i think you answered your own question there steven uh, maybe i my question went on too long and give you my opinion <laughs> yeah i mean i i would struggle to give you any like super super concrete motivations behind many of the characters besides jorg that's kind of where i'm at i think that they the were Prince done a little of bit arrow better. The Prince of Arrow is cool, but again, like you see him really in one scene with hints at him being in other scenes. And I like his the idea of him as a character, but yeah, him as a character I, in the actual book, I mean, I don't know. I still felt like, I mean, well, when you said you don't really know their motivations, I feel like I understood the Prince of Arrow's motivation. Yeah. Well. Okay, he's fine. like your typical noble hero who's who's like, I, I was born to be the emperor I and I'm doing it to make the empire a better place. Like I'm not trying to hurt people. I want, I want the people under me and, and Jorg it's interesting from his perspective because the Prince of Arrow is everything that Jorg isn't, you know, he's, he's this charismatic guy who looks after everyone around him. People 
just know he's he's destined and that just pisses George off. I like the conflict of that. I really do. I, I like how that is set up and I like the that uh Georgia is positioned as like the evil like force that's standing in the noble person's way, you know? And so in most books it would be flipped where you're following the Prince of Arrow and you had this like uh you know evil kind of Joffrey like yeah. character that was standing yeah. in the way of like Jon Snow or whatever. But like but so I like that conflict a lot. I thought it was really cool. But the actual, you know, him as a character didn't really do it for me, you know, because you didn't really get much time with him. You didn't have any reason to root for Arrow, Air Prince of Arrow, because you were just, he's kind of like a Hollow archetype of, of a character. But I think that the one, I think the best defined side character that we have was Megan. But I mean, especially with that conversation that you have with Jorg, where he wants all the violence to stop because of what happened to his daughter, right? And he's he well, and then Jorg is like, "Well, why aren't you, you know, standing behind the Prince of Arrow? Like, he also wants to unify the kingdom." And he's like, "Because I think that you're gonna actually do it, you know. Like, I think you have a better shot at success, and so I'm okay with the, you know, kind of the ends justify the means." So I don't know. I thought he was a very well-defined side character. You kind of got hints of his past. And the problem, I think, Stephen, first person, it's not that it's impossible to care about side characters. It's about to care about side characters more than our main character cares about side characters, right? Jorg mm. just doesn't care about people, right? In fact, he actively dislikes most people, even people that really care about him. Yeah. And so I think that that's kind of what makes it harder in this book. And I think last time we kind of had a discussion similar to this, we brought up Dresden and how like side characters in that series feel really well defined because Dresden actually likes them, you know? So yeah, I don't know. That's kind of my. But how how much did, I mean, I I do agree with a lot of your point, Ben. I'm just wondering how well developed were the side characters in Dresden after book two? Again, I still think I think Murphy was pretty well developed. I think Marcone was pretty well developed. Well, I guess I mean, like the shells of the like the the bones of the characters were there, but there was a lot of development that still had to come later in the series for Dresden. I, I think the problem with this is that you could have ten Prince books or you know Thorn books, and there, the side characters would never be any more developed because that's not the point of the book. The book. There'd just be an endless stream of different brothers coming in. Right. Yeah, it's it's because yeah. Jorg would just kill them before they get developed. Yeah, yeah. Or, si- or, or sacrifice them or be okay with them, you know. Yeah, dying. or do- just doesn't let them get close to him, right? Like at some point you're going to have to get another person's viewpoint other than Jorg to really care about these people. So yeah, I do. I do like Ben's point about caring yeah caring about them more than jorg would carry you're in jorg's shoes and his head and sometimes to get out of that and it's a little difficult in first person view where it's just so everything you're getting is from one point of view yeah i think also red rising does a pretty good job of having solid side characters um yeah and yeah and i think that i mean there's a lot of similarities between jorg and uh what's the main character i don't know anyway a lot of similarities between the books and i think darrow but (laughs) yeah there you go but darrow is a decent uh, human being he is a decent but he's definitely willing to he's he's a violent human being as well so yeah but again he cares about people around him so so ben if that point is true that the reason why we don't care about the side characters is because jorg doesn't does that mean that the Broken Empire is doing exactly what Mark Lawrence wants it to do and not having good side characters because <laughs> he set up a establishing where he George? doesn't need good yeah. side characters? Yeah, yeah. I, I see that. I could see that. This is a thing I think where you can say that the book is doing what it wants to do, but that doesn't mean it's super enjoyable. You know what I mean? You can you can appreciate the content for what it's doing without like getting a lot of enjoyment from it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I definitely think... Mark Lawrence wants the series to be a case study on Jorg and a dis- very dislikable main character that's doing questionable things, but like looking pretty dope along the way. You know, that's kind of mm-hmm. what I sh- what is set up to. Yeah, I, I do want to clarify that I am enjoying these books, but I just mean in the instance of like developing side characters, which is something that some books do really well and adds to the enjoyment. That's not really the focus of these books. Did you guys know that this book is heavily inspired by another book. No. What book, Ryan? <laughs> it's called A Clockwork Orange. 
which uh I that's think like a that's like a literary classic right yeah well yeah yeah it's made re- written in 1962 and it's um it's very dark it's basically about I mean, this is from Wikipedia. Alex is a 15-year-old living in a near-future dystopian society who leads his gang on a night of opportunistic random ultraviolence. Alex's friends are dim, slow-witted bruisers, gangs muscle. Anyway, so it's it's interesting reading from about that description. That. It sounds like the next the next hit yeah. TV series from your streaming service. No, yeah. this sounds like this sounds like Thorns combined with the Purge. <laughs> yeah, this, yeah. Sounds, this definitely sounds like a Blumhouse you know picture next next summer blumhouse picture i i cockwood orange always seems like a book that people like will reference and talk about and i can never get what it's about based on their references because it seems to pop up in the most random of places and i've never huh. gone on to uh you know i've never felt the need to read it i kind of feel the but need to read it now now Sounds i will like, yeah now I've, i do I read the plot summary on Wikipedia a little bit ago because I, I learned that it was inspired, uh, Mark Lawrence was inspired by this book. And I read the plot summary and I thought to myself, this does not sound like an interesting book to me. So maybe there's hmm. enough deviation or maybe the fantasy setting are just more interesting to me than the futuristic dystopian society. Who writes The Clockwork Orange? um it is written by anthony burgess well i might recognize we might know reviser iceberg list and throw that one in there somewhere (laughs) it's not fantasy though right it's no oh it's dystopian dystopian yeah okay but in the 60s we're we're gonna get shredded on discord discord tell us if we should read this book yeah we might have to do this we might have to read it at some point okay one side character that i did like that i wish we had more from can you guys guess who it is? Miana. Big K. <laughs> um, Miana, actually, yes, but I was thinking of someone else. Catherine. Catherine. Yeah, Catherine. Yeah. 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 Ben, ben said Big K. I don't oh, know. Oh, yeah. That... Big, okay. Yeah. Wasn't, hadn't yet assigned <laughs> the nickname Big K to Catherine. <laughs> okay. Yeah. She, she, well, I did like the twist of uh, kind of, Sages infiltrating her dreams, making her think she was pregnant, but she wasn't. So she ended up like taking poison. Like that was all pretty interesting. I don't know. I and didn't you guys love the hello Jorg part of the book? <laughs> I thought that I mean it, it was interesting. You, you just mean the fact like her role in it or the whole time box thing I mean, that was everything. Uh, I, it was just like hello Jorg and then you know george just talks like i I felt like there was some beautiful prose written around that about george's reaction just to those words and then after that it's just like a blink all of a sudden george is like waking up and he's like oh yeah what what happened and so you're like as a reader i was like oh my gosh like i need to know what happened like what what was so bad from after that point that george had to erase it from his memory he did do a really good job. Mark Lawrence did a really good job of writing the way that he wrote. Like you said, it was it was some really good prose. It made you feel like you were Jorg losing your mind around the same point. Like I specifically remember he, I think, uses the word like glisten and Jorg is like rhyming things with glisten and he's just like totally losing it. And it's like his mind is going off on some random tangent in the way that our minds do sometimes. And it just felt so crazy and and it fit Uh, yeah i totally agree the one thing i will say with Catherine, so i loved i that was my favorite part of the book right was her um was figuring out why he was so emotionally devastated like you said ryan um and and that mystery was for sure what compelled me so i don't want to like uh you know for this next negative thing you guys already said the positive things but Mm -hmm. i also feel like there's no i'm not really rooting for any type of romance anymore because she just hates him so much you know and even if it's that even if it's some subconscious stuff that she was tricked into she still hates him you know and it does make some comments like oh maybe i do wish it was you know uh jork's baby and not she she does make a few comments like that like that she's still kind of like uh fascinated by him but it's still like she just has so much hatred for him that I can't root for this romance. 
Don't you think it could be explained, right? Like the reason that she hates him is because he killed Deegan, but really it was Sages' fault. And she hates, she understands Sages. And she's, you know, she's the reason why George was able to take him down at the end even. So I feel like she could, you know, with some explanation with some proper communication, which we never get between characters in fantasy books. So it's probably ridiculous for me to think that this would and happen. TV shows and pretty much yeah. every, yeah. 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 But like, I feel like Catherine could, if given a chance, come to accept Jorg. I don't think so. I think that her hatred, if you have such deep hatred for somebody, then even a logical explanation of what they did isn't going to absolve that hatred and turn it into love. Yeah. You know, and most fair. you can maybe forgive them. Or Here's the thing, is, yeah. is George somebody who we cheer for him finding romance? Yeah, I feel like yeah, anybody, I feel bad for yeah, anybody who ends up with George. Ends, yeah, it's, I mean, yeah. Miana seems to be doing okay through her, at least through her wedding day. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, but does Miana deserve somebody as bad as Jorg? I feel, I feel a little bad for Miana. I don't know, man. She gave him a, a freaking bombs blow up half their forces. She's she's pretty ruthless. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, she's fourteen as well. She is she just as evil as Jorg? <laughs> maybe they're match made for each other. Match made in hell. I know. Maybe they just. <laughs> shouldn't have been preventing him from picking up on Catherine, but rather. Okay. So I called that right in our Prince of Thorns to, to some extent. Yeah. That was Prince kind of, of weird. Thorns the review. whole prophecy. Like I don't, I didn't really get that. Like the two people joined together would be like rival, like could rival. Yeah. It's specifically, it specifically said two Ancrafts together would like, you know, rule the empire or, or not rule the empire, but would, create a new would basically put an end to whatever like Like, order of yeah whatever's going on with sages and and those types of people so yes in prince of thorns i do feel good in saying like i identified that sages was influencing him while he could like he was trying to take down catherine or prevent anything from happening between them but also is Catherine even an Ancrath? Like, does she qualify for that prophecy? That didn't make sense to me. I don't remember, honestly, exactly why. I, I don't know that he's specifically preventing Jorg from getting together with Catherine. Oh, I think well, then maybe I I'm off. He's trying to manipulate Catherine into killing Jorg. Maybe so that his, his Jorg and his dad, Oladin, won't ever make up and yeah. just it just kind of eliminates any chance of that happening. I had the I same thought as you that too. So I, I thought Catherine could either be a wedge between Jorgen and his dad. I think the, the thing is Jorgen and his dad teaming up would be the two Ancrafts that could put an end to everything. Right. Uh-huh. And so if Jorg could forgive his father, then they could be able to maybe stop this. And if he married, if he and Catherine married or fell in love or whatever, then that would oh. make it a lot more you know, have a lot more motivation for him and his father to be on good terms. Well, and, I, see. I mean, that's I see that. the same reason why Jorg's brother was killed, right? Uh, it it does say that, yeah. And yeah. that's the same reason why Jorg was manipulated into killing Deegan. So I think they're just out to pretty much make sure there's only one Ancrath around. What do you guys think of the role of prophecy in this book slash series? I don't know if I'm as into it as I am into prophecies in other books. Like in A Song of Ice and Fire, I'm like tracking the prophecies and like seeing which ones are fulfilled and which ones aren't. Same with Wheel of Time. I feel like in Broken Empire, I'm just like, okay, like I don't really know what's important here or really care. It seems like they're definitely just like an incidental like side portion of the plot. Whereas like, you know, other books you're like looking for is the next big prophecy reveal. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, Game of Thrones, I feel like it's a little bit different because they give you the prophecies so early on and then there's so much development. Whereas these books, you, you, the, the, the prophecies are more of a, a side and a side to the story. They're not, it doesn't revolve mm. so much around it. It's 
more like explaining the actions of these like master manipulators behind the scenes a little bit. Okay. And this and almost the, seems like a Harry Potter type of prophecy book where it's kind of like the mm-hmm. prophecy supplements uh, your understanding of the of the events that are transpiring versus rather than drives like what's gonna happen type of yeah exactly well i think it's i think it's more analogous to oh dang driver combi first law uh, the prophecy in, in first law and especially the prophecies in the second oh yeah second age of age of madness prophecy age of madness. I, was, yeah. I just finished my reread of the trilogy and i was like is, is there prophecy in the first <laughs> yeah i don't so, i don't remember if there's any yeah. prophecies in the first trilogy but in the second trilogy, there's some prophecies. Yeah, the um, lion and the, the lion lamb and the, and, the, lamb and, the and the owl. owl. And yeah, yeah. And there might be another animal in there too. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, it seems a little bit more like that. What kind of confused me was, was the weight that Jorg puts on prophecies. Because sometimes it feels like he just has disdain for prophecies. And other times he's like trying to fulfill those prophecies. Like when he goes and, you know, makes what's his face, accept him as, or like adopt him into their family, into the Arrow family so that he can. Be well, I think his... he's manipulating societal. Oh yeah. I, I thought he just did that so he could become the next Prince of Arrow. Although I really didn't understand that, like getting this, getting Egan to say that he was adopting him as he was dying in front of the priest who's already on his side. Like that's really going to be something useful i think yeah. i think it could i i think it could be honestly like if think, it is it's because it's forced to be maybe. there's no reason why yeah anybody... couldn't he have got a crooked priest to say this no matter what like if i'm if i'm you know king of any other land i'm not going to put any stock in what jorg Some is random. saying yeah. yeah but that's that's why i think it might be for him to know he feels like he's fulfilling the prophecy though plus like apparently he didn't kill the prince because he was like trampled to death by his own men like okay like i guess yeah the the last thing i will say about prophecies real fast is i do think it's interesting that's like a mathematical prophecy or what like that's the implication was that they had done all these mathematical computations um that this was going to happen with like certainty you know like that was a little weird to me too like the whole mathematician thing and doesn't like jorg hate the mathematician guy Math magician, math magician. Yeah. <laughs> because because I, know, I, I was like listening to it. I was like, I want. I'm pretty sure that's a math magician, but I'm not entirely sure. Yeah. It's something that might not be as clear now, but there there is something to be said in this world about the power of will and its influence on reality. And I think that Jorg, if anything, has uh, incredible strength of will, mm. and I think that. Uh, we might see a little bit more why that might be important. That's interesting. Good foreshadowing. Okay. Well, yeah, there's some good foreshadowing for us for Emperor, it sounds like. That's cool. I was going to say, to finish up our dis- our discussion about math magicians, I think Stephen might fit right in at home with his data science magic. Yeah, Stephen's a math magician for sure. Yeah, good, uh, do a nice little regression model for George's life. Are you trying to get me to do a weird flex right now? Is that no, that's <laughs> what's happening. I don't know. Well, I, I honestly didn't know if it was like, oh, in this society, like they've taken our concepts of like data science and modeling and kind of like use that to inform like their uh, like superstitious. You know what I mean? I don't yeah. know. It kind of seems like that could be like, well, especially knowing I mean, that, that the author has like a PhD I, in math. Yeah. Like, but, but it also went through some, some uh, calculations that George could perform on the spot and they seemed you know they they're like advanced calculus that he was doing so it seems like they have some understanding of uh, like higher order math i mean calculus has been around since newton though yeah right? but yeah okay but calculus also it's also the foundation for most like statistical yeah. modeling you're doing so well yes yes true yeah but they don't, have, they, the, have the, they don't have the, the computational ability to have any of that be useful yet they're they're not at that point well, they have an AI. We don't know what com- they might have yeah, a computer the, that they. I mean, maybe like the yeah, okay, maybe the math magicians have. That, a, yeah, that's what I'm saying. They yeah. might have some like computer somewhere that they're okay. able to run these models on. And... I don't think I, I again. I think it's more likely that they've kind of have this hybrid superstitious thing that's based on you know like 
some type of modeling no. that Dev, wasn't that like a big thing in the like 50s is they had whole teams of people solving these like matrices out that was like their whole job was to would surprise me sounds yeah sounds yeah. like a good math anecdote yeah. like the the one the one math lecture that the professor wants to have something interesting it's like rather than solve these problems today like i'm going to tell you a story about the history of math and the yeah, yeah. And now feel grateful that you have your TI-89 that you can plug uh -huh. the matrix <laughs> in. Yeah, let's technology. talk about this more at the end of book three. Ooh, <laughs> ooh okay, okay. Ooh. Another another right. teaser. And that's how you do foreshadowing. <laughs> yeah. So I in should be an author. <laughs> in general, I thought the technology and the, and the magic and the setting was, again, really cool. And I think he's he's built this up nicely from kind of the introduction of this broken dystopian world in the first book we don't get very many details now we get more details in book two and it sounds like what ryan is saying more will be explained in book three so i think this is a nice progression of what's going on in the setting with the builders and and what level of technology we have access to i like yeah. it have you guys gotten to the part where uh at castle and craft they talk about how there's a sign in the bottom of yeah that says it's, uh, no parking or something. Yeah, it's basically they live in a parking garage. Yeah. That's their castle. And, and I think Jorg says that, you know, the builders obviously had some stuff, but, uh, you know, we don't understand how any of their words fit together yeah, anymore. Exactly. Like, what could this be for? Mm -hmm. I think a lot of this would work really well in a more visual medium. Yeah. Yeah, especially. So can we jump ahead to the end? Because the end where he talks like as he's walking up to the duel, it's the backdrop of this description is just about how his mother's playing the piano. And he talks about like how they're, they're walking along and the high notes and the low notes are coming together and everything. And this, this whole scene was so cinematic to me as they're, you know, walking up with the dramatic music for the big it, showdown. So, so, you know, that that's going to be a, what band? The band, Kurt Cobain's band. I, Nirvana? I, yeah, Nirvana. It's like some Nirvana song, right? Like they're going to okay. put like a Nirvana song in here where they're like walking up and... Uh, I don't see it. I'm sorry. I you don't it see was... it? Because it's going to be like a song from our day. Yeah, it's going to have to be. And I I don't know, like Heart Shaped Box I mean, or something. I feel like maybe there's more than just Nirvana that could I don't know. Nirvana's playing in there in my head. Not like, like some epic, like soundtrack i i don't know I, I was i was thinking grunge rock is wasn't on my mind it didn't how is punk grunge rock not on your mind for i agree with josh i i think some punk grunge rock would fit really nicely as the soundtrack to the these movies all right all right well, i don't know i think i think i i would say more like black parade album yeah that would that would be good i could I, see some lincoln park you mean as well. like the Done, done. Uh, yeah, done. welcome yeah, to the kind of yeah. yeah, as he walks up and then he when shoots I him. Was a young boy. Yeah, kind of, and then then like if we just like shoots him and starts like I like screaming it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I but yeah, that twist was really cool when he just pulls out the gun. It's like, or do you know why I practiced all this time, you know, to become a better swordsman? <laughs> so uh -huh. that you believe that you're like you'd accept this duel with me. And right. Like, Typical awesome. Jorg. And with his, he's got this sword in his left hand. And he's like, yeah, I'm, I'm actually <laughs> yeah. left-handed. It's like, nope, it's because I can shoot with my right hand. <laughs> yeah, and that was a, that was a cool, that's how you subvert a trope right there. Yeah, that is. It's like, it was kind of, it's kind of like an Indiana Jones type thing, right? Yeah. With the yeah. swordsman. And then he just takes out his gun and shoots him. That's similar to that. Did you guys see the, prince of arrow twist at all coming no but i thought that was well done because looking back i should have yeah mm -hmm. that definitely reminded me of like a joe abercrombie twist as well you know like it was well done yeah it wasn't clear to me did everyone know that Orin was dead and egan was now the prince of arrow or was it like only george somehow no i think it was pretty i think it was pretty widespread knowledge it was just... but did Catherine know yeah i think she, but she knows. In, in her last letter the it last was only like two weeks old right at that point yeah it, it was recent the last that we got from Catherine was egan had been writing 
Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, I finally got a letter from Egan. This is weird. He never writes. And it seems super sus looking back, although I didn't realize it at the time. So I don't know if she knew going into the battle or not. She was a smart person. She's a smart girl. Okay. Yeah. Like, uh, she probably put it together because she couldn't access uh, her husband's dreams, right? I mm-hmm. mean, you, like, you, she couldn't ever access it. But even before she couldn't, she could still find him, I think. Right. So maybe that absence of her husband, she knew something had happened to him. And one of the last things she says was that now he's taken up with Sages and I'm telling him not to. And then like, this is the last thing she hears from him. But it was cool because throughout the beginning, you know, the first few hundred pages, it never says in present day, if it's Oren or Egan, it just says the Prince of Arrow, mm-hmm. which works because it is the yeah. Prince of Arrow, but not the Prince of Arrow that you think it is. So it's, it's yeah, cool. It's good. I liked that. What about like the whole, the Prince of Arrow was killed by a bullet? Like, is that, to, is that like a thing or am I just- Oh, I didn't think about that. It, it could be, yeah. okay. Some irony there. Cause there is a line in the book that's like, it references bullets and he's like, yes, I do know what those are too. You know what I mean? And like- It's, it's like right before, yeah. 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 I remember when I was first reading, I was thinking, is Jory actually going to do this? Like, is he going to kill somebody who he knows is better than he is for the kingdom, for the future of the world? Somebody mm-hmm. who can unite it and would be the greater emperor for all of these people. At the end of the day, it, it Sages, Sages stepped in because Egan couldn't be, or sorry, not uh, was it Orin? Is that his Orin. name? Yeah. Orin of Arrow couldn't be controlled. But that's okay. But that's kind of what annoys me about the ending, though, is because it didn't for, force Jory to make that decision. And I feel like that's what the book that's is not. telling you that it's going to do is watch you have you watch Jory make bad decisions. Yeah. You know, so let, let's the- say hypothetically, if it was Jorg versus Oren of Arrow, what decision uh-huh. would he have made? He would have killed him. No, I don't have- think he knew. I don't think he knew because he even told Oren, he was like, I don't know. Like, I'm glad you did it because I might have been content just to like. Well, that, he tells Egan that, right? Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. No, but he tells him that. But come on, Jorg will lie. He, he cares nothing about honesty. I, I think he kills Oren. I don't think he does. I think he. Really? I think he matures enough in those few years to realize that even though it's what he wants that it's not, I don't, I think he okay. knows that it's wrong enough that he's not going to, I think it. he would form an alliance and backstabbed him. Like after they conquered the kingdom, that's his... no, I, I think that George lets him in the comments down below. If you're watching this on YouTube, <laughs> say, if you think that he would have killed Lauren or not. Nice. <laughs> Got him. Or hop on discord and let us know what you think. That's probably the, the easier way to talk to us. <laughs> I don't think he sacrifices. I, I don't think he lets that battle go on and as many thousands die if he knows he's just gonna he's just gonna submit to Oren. I think he was I think he was in it to win. Although he knew that Egan was already had already killed Oren. So maybe if he already knew that Oren was dead, he wouldn't have even gotten into the whole wedding day battle. Yeah, hard to say. It's a hypothetical. Yeah. Okay, I feel like I want to. I feel like I want to do my worst of the best. Should we? Yeah, we can do worst of the best. There's a few more plot points, so try to make your worst of the best about a plot point we haven't talked about yet. How about that? Okay. Okay. Can I go first? Okay, Josh. The worst of the best. With so many exemplary moments in this book, it's almost unfair to nitpick. But that's the segment. It's the pimple on the princess. The stain on the satin. And the terror before the triumph. The unfortunate portion of an otherwise stellar performance. Someone has to point it out. 
my worst of the best is swamp zombies, which you alluded to at the beginning. Sorry, I don't know how much this is. We didn't even talk about. We don't have enough time, but we didn't talk about it. I know this is partly why I want to talk about it right now because it was such a cool scene. Yes. And again, in a freaking like, if this were a TV show, then this would be an amazing episode like this. You know, kind of horror like jump scare zombie. Like you know, this is so cool. But part of the thing about this series is it sets up some settings which are really interesting cool and then never revisits them you get them for like a chapter or two and then you're out of mm-hmm. there and you, and you don't go back and so i i feel like this is one of those things where it was super cool really fun great imagery and i just didn't get enough time there and wanted to maybe revisit there get more time there or just you know have it be a bigger part of the book well, wasn't it just the same? I mean, I know I know it was a different location than from Prince of Thorns, but wasn't it pretty much the same setting as the whole episode with Chella? Then just, you know, we're taking on Chella and her zombies again in a different place. It's like level two of this video game. I guess so, yeah. But again, I still would have liked to see it more, you know. I, I, I really like the necromancy part of the book because I think that is like the most fantastical part of the book. And so have having that be a bigger part um, in general and more specific at this swamp location, just I would have, you know, appreciated more of that. Yeah, I can see that. I, I guess that leads in to two other points that we didn't talk about briefly. So Jory's magic is gone. Both his newly acquired fire magic and the necromancy that he's had around, that's both gone now, or, or that's what we're supposed to understand by the end of the book. And the dead king is now like the new big bad now that Sages has taken down. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about the dead I king. Did, I didn't really maybe, get that. How did maybe that's someone else's worst of the best is the dead king because we have like this, nothing. I feel like we you're have, doing your nothing. worst of the best right now, Steven. No, no, I have a different. I mine has to be different. <laughs> All right. My worst of the best is like like Gog and Magog. Like I don't I just didn't really understand why like how they died or I don't know. I felt like I was playing catch up at that part of the book. And I like all of a sudden this like main character is gone. Well, Dang, well Mag- Magog, Magog was dead in book one. First, yeah. Okay. Sorry. Gog. Are you thinking of Gorgoth? Sure. Yeah. No, no, no. Gorgoth was a big deal. Yeah. But Gorgoth also didn't die. So maybe I'm, I'm asking if you thought Magog was Gorgoth and like, it's all jumbled up together. No, I who whatever like the kid that they rescued like okay Gog, yeah Gog, yes. Gog, yeah yeah right, and then he they also try and go to rescue him again, but he and like and that's where Jorgens is burned. I don't know, guys. That I like you were like falling a, asleep during this part. Might might have been yeah. So, so they left because of Gog will eventually kind of explode or or something. He's like consumed. Yeah, be consumed. Yeah. He's like a ticking time bomb. So they go to try and find him help. And I think it's also Jorg is trying to somewhat match the Prince of Arrow by because the Prince of Arrow is so well-traveled and knows all about his soon-to-be empire. And so I think Jorg feels a little inferior. And so that that's one of the reasons why Jorg leaves. But they go to get help for Gog from this fire mage Farrakind. Farrakind's this bad guy who doesn't want to help them but wants to take Gog and I think they ultimately He's kind of him. lost his mind in yeah. my like in my reading he seemed to be basically consumed by the fire. Yeah, and which would I think similar to what would happen with Gog if enough time had gone on. And so at the end of the day Gog fights him off or fights with Farrakind and I think they melt the the mountain or something yeah there so their use of fire is enough to melt the ice in the I, I believe like the caldera of the volcano and then all of this water rushes through and jorg has observed because jorg is just incredibly intelligent in all of these matters has observed that the, the tunnels are you know smooth and, and water has flowed through here at one point so he risks it all and comes through once again as jork always does um but the the water that has just melted rushes in and and and, and comes down on everyone as they're red hot right and farrakind is is extinguished and gog is also killed 
he, I think he like bursts into a million pieces because he's basically like white hot and then cooled like way too rapidly. And yeah, I don't know. I felt like that was a part of the book that I just didn't like, I don't know. Didn't understand. Grand-tobo. I thought it was, I, I thought it was really well done. I think maybe you need to revisit <laughs> maybe it. Maybe I know. Go back and, and listen to that again. Yeah. Okay. All right, well, I'll, I'll do my worst to the, was that your worst of the best, Ben? Yeah. Well, that was just me as a reader, not being, <laughs> not paying attention. All right. So my worst of the best, uh, so Stephen actually just touched on it. I'm specifically going to say the final battle, just because that highlights one point in which as, as cool as it is to see Jorg overcome these immense odds, sometimes it's frustrating just to be like, it's so, the odds are so stacked against Jorg. Like in this battle, you're like, well, okay, well, he just he just killed a thousand people, but there's still nineteen thousand yeah. more. Yeah, and uh-huh. it, it it just he just keeps pulling one trick after the other out of his pocket, and it gets uh, to the point where maybe it was just my second read through, but I was like, this is like a little yeah. bit much. Where you're like, it. yeah, it's like one thing after the other, and you're like, uh-huh. well, uh, I don't, it's, it's not quite as believable at this point especially when he was even running out of plans that were locked away from his memories. Like he got his memories back and he's like, Oh, I still don't have any more plans. But as the reader, you're like, but we know you're still going to win somehow. Yeah. So anyways, Uh, it was a cool battle, cool scene. He defeats the Prince of arrow, but it was a little bit much at times. All right. After forcing Ben and Josh to choose scenes that we hadn't covered yet, I am going back to the final battle again (laughs) for my worst of the best. And it's the gun scene because the gun scene was cool. And we talked about, you know, whipping out the gun, Indiana Jones style, but it was, in my opinion, it was just given away like a few pages too soon because mm-hmm. once we got to the point where it talked about how he picked up the gun from the, uh, you know, he finds like the stasis, the stasis chamber from uh, what's his face who had who had committed suicide the data memory and then he picks up some mysterious thing from the lockbox underneath his throne you're like oh what is it well it's obviously a gun and then he goes and he he uses it like it was just given away a few pages too soon so i knew that he was going to shoot him as as they were walking up with nirvana playing and everything we knew that he was still going to shoot him i think it would have been a little bit cooler if we didn't find that out until the very last moment yeah that's fair yeah that's fair i i do think it was cool that was like why do you think i've been training the last training so hard the last x number of years Uh he's like not so that i could beat you but so that you take the fight thinking you know i mean like i thought that was interesting of yeah you know, he's baiting him in, knowing that he's not going to be the better person, but having the other person, uh, you know, manipulating the other person to think that he thinks that he can beat him. You know, I thought that was the most interesting part for me. I mean, I think that's a nice line to say, but I think he was training to try to be the best no, swordsman. because he this. found the gun. Because if you go back to the timeline, he found the gun before he started really training in earnest to be the best swordsman. Uh, okay. Okay. That's fair. Because I think he found the gun before he met the Prince of Arrow the first time. Uh, no, no, it was after. It was after. It was after. But like you say, I'm sure he continued his training for the next three years. Yeah. But also, like, he shouldn't abandon his training because he still did a lot of fighting. No, but it, that was you, you knew that he had that plan that as long as he could go. Like the reason why he was just trying to inflict damage, he knew that he couldn't win. Right. So he was just trying to inflict mm-hmm. as much damage so that the Prince of Arrow would take a duel. And then he knew that he could beat him in that duel because he had the yeah goal. okay that's and fair. he knew that he would he would take the duel because he knew that Jorg thought that he legitimately had a chance of winning because he had been training and Jorg is full of himself you know what I mean right I think it worked I think it, okay all of that setup it, right. worked yeah. really well yeah yeah I like I mean that. you're right about the gun thing but I think the rest of the setting up the duel with the taking mm-hmm. as many casualties as they can and all that stuff worked really well okay. All right, this is our review of King of Thorns, book two. We will get to Emperor of Thorns in the near future when our uh, crowded reading schedule allows. Uh, we do we are reading Foundation now to prepare for the Apple Plus show. But uh, yeah, I don't know. Any, any final King of Thorns thoughts? I guess let us know what song you think should be playing 
as they walk up for the duel. Yeah, I'm excited to hear the the thoughts of one of our Discord members in particular on this, who's a composer. So. Yeah. yeah. Also, I just want to say, uh, this isn't about the book, but we're really trying to hit a thousand subscribers, uh, you know, by the end of the year. So if you do come listen to our stuff on YouTube, then, you know, throw us a subscription and like the video and all that stuff because yeah we, we it's our goal to hit a thousand by then the year and we're pretty close but we need uh, everybody that's listening to subscribe yes we need you phantology phantology listener we need your subscription to help our wildest dreams come true <laughs> <laughs> all right guys see you see you next time <laughs> <laughs>